You're listening to the Wax Pack Hero Sports Card Minute, a podcast where we discuss both the hobby and business sides of collecting. I'm your host, Mike Summer, and I want to help you buy, sell, and trade your way into a collection you'll love. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Wax Pack Hero Sports Card Minute. In today's episode, we've got another interview for you, and today it is with Mike Moynihan. Mike is somebody that I first met when I was participating in one of the presentations at Hobby Palooza this last summer, and he was the host of it. He is better known as the baseball collector on YouTube, and he does and has done a video show on YouTube talking about vintage cards for a few years now. And uh, if you ever want to learn about vintage, Mike is a place to go, and his video channel is a place to go. It's part of Bench Clear Media now, and he's got a lot to say about vintage. And so we did kind of a home and home type of situation where he interviewed me for his show. And I interviewed him for our show here. So I know what you're thinking. Get on with it, Mike. And okay, I'll do that. Here's the interview. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. You don't have to remember another name today. That's good. That's right. We've got Mike and Mike today. Well, I wanted to just start our conversation a little bit about just getting your collecting background. You know, what, where did that start? How long have you been collecting? Did you take a break like many of us and come back? Or have you been collecting the whole time since you were a kid? All of that type of stuff. So it's a very broad question, but let's hear a little bit about your collecting background to get things started. Well, I will try to give you a relatively narrow answer, but I started collecting all the way back in 1981. And I distinctly remember being a eight-year-old kid sitting on my floor in my bedroom, sorting out 81 Donruss, 81 Fleer, 81 Tops into different teams. And I had so few cards that I could literally line them up on the floor and it wasn't a big deal. You know, you're just starting and getting packs and stuff like that. So that's kind of how I got started. And no, I have never taken a break through almost 40 years. Uh, I've had those periods where a lot of us probably, as you get into high school and college, where I slowed down collecting, but I never stopped. I remember in college going to card shops. I remember buying cards. I was a player collector mainly back then. And so I started with Buddy Bell and Jim Sunberg for the, I'm a Rangers fan. So those old school guys back in the eighties and collecting Rangers. And then moved on to Daryl Strawberry through the 80s. Then I graduated to Juan Gonzalez, Devon Rodriguez, Michael Young, and then Josh Hamilton. And Josh Hamilton was the beginning of the end of me being a player collector. I have so many Josh Hamilton cards that I literally can't give away now that I, it made me change my entire focus on how I collected. So you've been a lifelong Texan then? I have. Yeah, so I've got I've got some family members who also live in the Dallas area, and when we would get together um, in the summers and trade cards and things, my cousins and I, you know, they were always after whatever Ivan Rodriguez cards I had. You know, they're they're that age, so that was their focus. Yeah, Josh Hamilton's interesting. You know, I know um, I have a, a couple folks that I knew through being a baseball chaplain who were from Texas and who personally knew Josh. And yeah, just such an interesting 
interesting personality of someone who had so much potential, who demonstrated so much skill and ability and had these other demons. And then the, his faith journey of, um, you know, coming to faith and that helping for a while, but still succumbing to some of those struggles throughout the whole process. It, he's an, a very interesting um, person to me just from both the, the, the life aspect of, of him as well as his on-field um, accomplishments. And yeah, he's, he's one of those that, that I can see why people both gravitate to him and also steer clear of him. But yeah, he's, he's an interesting case study as far as um, an MLB player. Yeah. His, I tell you what attracted me to, I guess all of the players that I've collected over the years is like Daryl Strawberry could just crush the ball and Juan Gonzalez could crush the ball, but Josh Hamilton could murder a baseball. Mm-hmm. I mean, he hit balls that, and you can hear former players and coaches and you hear it all the time. Josh Hamilton, just the ball sounded different off of his bat. I mean, he hit the ball so hard and such authority and he had such amazing talent after the 08 all-star game, which is when he kind of burst onto the national scene at the Yankee stadium home run derby during the all-star game, he hit, you know, 28 home runs in the first round and, you know, darn near hit one out of Yankee stadium and the fans were going nuts and chanting his name. And that was when I became a diehard Josh Hamilton collector. And knowing what he had been through his life struggles only made the story greater to me in the, during that period when I was collecting him probably from 08 till about 2013, once he got traded to the angels or signed as a free agent with the angels that kind of diminished that idea for me. Uh, But overall I have one of the biggest Josh Hamilton collections in the world. And it's like, 151 of ones, 300 plus autographs. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And now it's like, uh, what, and even the struggles he's had recently, it just shows that even as men of faith that we are, you know, we always have targets on our back. Yeah. Uh, so that could be a whole nother discussion, couldn't it? I yeah, it, it, it definitely could be. And so you mentioned that he was one of the last, modern focuses that you have and and that was you said the beginning of the end of your focus on player collecting what was there any aspects of that or was there more in conjunction with that that shifted your focus to vintage which is your your what you're primarily known for now sure yes it was a total catalyst for me completely shifting my collecting focus and it was because as hamilton you know, left to go to the Angels, and he hadn't done so great in his last couple of years here in Texas. He ended up coming back to Texas, not doing so great. But it got me thinking, like, golly, you know, I've collected five or six players heavily over my collecting life. One of them was in the Hall of Fame. I was one for six. And if you think about, not that that has to be the reason why you do it, but they're you don't want to just literally throw thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars at these players to not have them have any terminal value. And so that got me thinking about, man, okay, what do I really want my collection long-term to look like? And I was getting it to an age and more importantly, 
a discretionary income level where like, man, I want to start buying some of those cards that I never thought I could own kind mm-hmm. of thing. And I said, what do, where do I really want to start focusing on? And it, and it immediately went vintage for me and mainly not just vintage itself, but hall of fame vintage. Because if you think about the long-term value hall of famers are as pretty much as solid as it can get. It's not, you know, that you're going to make a mint on it, but in terms of just make retaining value and not that again, it's, it may sound like I'm being uh, completely money driven in my decisions. That's not true. I have always loved the history of the game. When I was a kid, I used to just read the baseball encyclopedia and learn the stats and know who all the key player words were. And I had all these stats in my brain. I, I knew all the key numbers and just loved the history of the game. And so I remember as a kid, I had the 83 Donruss Hall of Fame hero set. Do you remember mm-hmm. that set? Yep. Painted by Dick Perez. Just uh, did a blog post on that set. Okay, awesome. Uh, one of my favorite sets of all time, 33 cards, right? Uh, or no, more than that. It's a little bit more than that, yeah. 40 or something, something like that. But there were a bunch of them that could be signed. And so I have every one of them that can be, if the player was alive in 83 and could sign their card, I have those. I have that okay. signed. They're all Hall of Famers. So I just said, golly, this is awesome. And then I went to... Uh, and, and maybe even a few years, a couple of years before that, it became Hall of Fame autographs because I went to the Rangers Fan Fest just to, you know, the, you know, preseason fun event that the teams will throw at different, at their stadiums or whatever. And Fergie Jenkins was there and he was signing and it was 20 bucks to get Fergie Jenkins to sign something. I said, oh my gosh, Hall of Famer for $20. And it. And I said, I wonder how many other Hall of Famers I can go out and get for $20. Sure. Sure enough, you can get a whole, or at least back then, this was 2011 or so, so nine years ago. Man, you can get a lot of Hall of Famers for 20 bucks. Right. And so I started building that collection and, and I had a bunch of stuff from when I was a kid that my dad had gotten that also contributed to that. Wow, I got a really cool little start here. And it became another obsession. So Hall of Fame cards or cards of hall of famers and autographs of hall of famers is where I would tell you I spend 95% of my collecting world. Yeah. For me, one of the things I love most about cards is that historical connection that cards can provide to the sport, to baseball um, or basketball or football, whatever sport you're, you're collecting. And that's one of the reasons that I still find myself being, a set builder, at least for one main set per year is to have that kind of historical record for the year of who was in the league and who was the players um, that were making, making hay during that period of time. And so for me, when I find myself going back and getting vintage, it's, it's to build those vintage sets. And so I've worked my way back through the seventies at this point and just finished off the 69 complete set earlier this year. I'll be moving on to 68 and starting to pick up some of those. But it's because I love having both that historical record of those big name Hall of Famers as well as everyone else that plays. And and so I, I like that. But it seems like you're focused a little bit more on on the specific Hall of Fame players, not building those vintage sets or not trying to put together 
um, kind of the full run of a, a particular year or decade. That's correct. I do have every top set from 73, which was the year I was born to current. Okay. So I do have that. Uh, I would love to get older sets, but for me, uh, when I'm buying the hall of famers and I'm buying them all slab too, I'm trying to get every hall of fame card from 1950, which includes tops and Bowman to 1989. Okay. So four decades worth it's 2000 and something cards. It's some ridiculous kind of lifelong project that, uh, I've actually made quite a bit of progress on and it's so much fun to do that. But you said something that I think is interesting that baseball, and I think baseball does this more than any other sport because of the history, because of the numbers that people know. And, you know, everybody knows Maris hit 61 and 61. And before that it was Ruth had 60 and, you know, those, there are some numbers that matter in baseball seemingly more so than in other sports. And so you can connect to those periods with cards probably easier than you can in football or basketball or any other sport. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. And plus you just have, I'm going to call it, and this, I don't know if this is the best way to describe it. I'm going to call it a more consistent history. You know, major league baseball has been major league baseball for a hundred years and essentially right sure but we had football we had a merger of two different leagues basketball we had multiple competing leagues you know throughout the modern vintage era right whatever you want to call you know throughout those you know 50s 60s 70s we had competing leagues going on at the same time and the nba wasn't the same nba that we've got today or you know the nfl it wasn't until fairly recently um, that it was the NFL that we know today, but baseball's been baseball for a long time. Yeah. And I think that's another piece that that adds to that mix. You hit on something that I wanted to to just touch on a little bit and see, you talked about most of what you're going after is slabbed cards. Um, and as many listeners to our to my show know, I'm not a huge fan of grading. Grading, it rubs me the wrong way the authenticity factor of vintage is the one piece that I do see some value in, but not necessarily that number that's associated with grading. It's the, the authenticity piece that I see value in. I'm just curious on what attracted you to graded cards versus not you're graded gonna, cards. You're going to love my answer to this because when I started going vintage, I started thinking, okay, where do I want to focus? I don't want to just be random. And I started doing a set registry called the 300 great cards by Mike Payne. Okay. Not knowing it was a set registry. I was just trying to get those cards. Cause if you go through that book, there's some cards that don't make any sense, but most of the cards are cards you'd love to own in a, in a well-rounded baseball vintage collection. And so as I started buying those cards raw initially, by the way, started thinking, you know, even though I've been doing this a really long time, I don't know that I can tell a fake mantle verse. And, and, and these are bigger, you know, not all of them are expensive, but enough where I didn't want to be, you know, buying a fake card. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was more initially 
I'd never bought graded cards before that. I thought it was a absolute gimmick thing. And it became, I just want to know that it's real. I want to know, or at least <laughs> it's not a hundred percent, but it's better than just me know, providing an opinion on whether or not it's real. Right. And so you have a third party that's saying, yes, this card's real. The number on the card was largely irrelevant to me in terms of the actual numerical grade. It was way more about, you know, what it was. And so I have a lot of these cards that are relatively low and I'm a low to mid grade kind of guy. That's where I live yeah. because yeah. I really truly believe in having a nice example of the card. And I want to, cause as you know, the, the price difference between one number can be, you know, exponentially higher. And we all only have so much money to spend on cards, no matter what that budget might be or how many zeros are behind it. And so for me, it's more of, I want to stretch my hobby dollar as much as I can and get as many cool things as I can. So if I have to buy a Hank Aaron rookie and a three, I'm going to buy the best three I can find. And instead of buying a six or a seven, and then I can, I still have a Hank Aaron rookie, you know yep. what I mean? It's an example. Yep. So, and I love the card. So what do I care what grade it is? And so it was, it was for me, certainly at the beginning, an authenticity thing yeah. that I just wanted to be sure or at least be mostly sure. It's going to be, I, I can envision this day when I get to the point where I'm wrapping up the 68 set that I'm just starting to get started on. Unless I, I'm going to do whatever I can to find a trusted seller for that Nolan Ryan that I'm going to need to buy. Right. But I have a feeling I'm going to need to buy a graded one for that authenticity piece, but it's going to take everything I can not to break it out of that case and put it. There's nothing wrong with cracking it, crack it yeah. out. And, and I think, I, I think I'm going to find myself with that, that conflicted knowing that I will like it better when it's not in the case, but I know that I probably paid somewhat of a premium to buy it graded and um, then I'm going to immediately diminish the value of it. Um, but it's going to be that, an internal that, conflict that I've got when I finally get to that point. Yeah. But won't that premium that you're going to pay for the plastic provide some peace of mind and doesn't that have value? Yeah, I think so. And, and it will be one of those things that barring some kind of life emergency or the, or when I finally die and my collection gets passed on to somebody else, I will not be selling it. Right. That's part of my, I'm not buying that or I wouldn't be, buying that card for an investment purpose. It's, it's for that personal collection. And so to some extent, even if it does take somewhat of a hit, it doesn't matter. But anyway, I was just curious a little bit on, on where that, that focus on grading started from, whether it was, um, you know, people have different motivations for it. So I was just kind of curious. So thank you for, for sharing that as you sh shifted into that vintage focus, do you have something that you would consider your most memorable pickup? Uh, without a doubt, uh, I bought a 1951 Mickey Mantle Bowman, 51 Bowman Mantle. I bought it in a PSA five and truth be told, I bought that grade instead of a much lower grade, just cause I saw, I've had too many experiences in my life as a collector where I wish I would have done right. The, Oh, I sh if I would have only bought that card. You know, today's 
today's high prices are next year's discounts, right? right? And so I saw that writing on the wall a couple of years ago in vintage. And vintage ha has gone up quite a bit, but not in the same vein as all the newer stuff has, you know, with the craze right. and hobby. <laughs> and I think it's just because the investor folks haven't caught on yet. They will. Mm -hmm. That'll happen. And so I'm trying to, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have this date burned in my memory, but it was certainly within the last year. It was pre-COVID that I bought the mantle. And uh, yeah, that was a, a, a big card. And I mean that I don't usually do this with my wife and a lot of people out there might have to do this all the time, but it's the first time I had to ask my wife, like, Hey, I, I want to do this. Is it okay? Sure. Cause I mean, it, it was a $14,000 card. Yep. And I, I usually, you know, I have a bunch of hundred dollar bills in my collection, right? You know, $20 bills, hundred dollar bills, you know, and stuff that's just not, uh, you know, life-changing for us anyway, this was a big purchase. And so I had to, so when I went up, I literally went and picked up the card because it was three hours away at a card shop up in okay. Oklahoma. And I literally drove up there with hundred dollar bills and took it to them and paid for the card. Uh, so I was pretty excited when uh, I got that sucker. Yeah. One of the things that I talk about a lot is, balancing both the business and hobby side of collecting. And I try to focus on having a self-sustaining hobby. So buying and selling to generate the funds that allow me to purchase the things for my own collection. I was just curious on with this focus on vintage, is that something that you would all try to do or do you do much selling or are you pretty much a pure buy and hold buy and, and collect type focus? Uh, door number two, please. Okay. Uh, and, but the only time I really sell stuff is either a, it's a modern, for example, I got a Christian Yelich earlier this year. I paid a hundred dollars for a PSA 10 just cause I wanted to, I thought he was a great player. I sold it for, you know, 150 bucks and a nine. Like I traded it essentially with a friend. He gave me $150 cash and a nine. Yep. So now I, I, again, I told you the number doesn't really matter. Right. I have a Yelich rookie. It's a nine, which is by the way, a mint card. Right. Uh, so I'm perfectly happy with that. And I made 50% on my initial $100 uh, purchase. On vintage, I'm, I just totally blanked on the question. Like, <laughs> so bad. No, it was more, it was kind of wondering if you do much buying yeah, and selling yeah, yeah. of things to generate the funds that you use for buying your, your vintage PC cards. Yeah, so no, for the most part, I just, it's all new money, so to speak. Okay. It's all earnings that I'm, you know, discretionary income that I'm using to add to my collection with the, again, the small exception of things like I just mentioned, as well as when you're trying to do a, you know, two to 3000 card, you know, project, like I'm trying to do, I bought cards accidentally more than once and ended up with uh, duplicates, so to speak. And as those accumulate, as I get 15, 20, 25 of those, I might, I'll do like a quick, live sale on my YouTube channel and try to sell those, but just mainly just to clear out space than anything. It's not that I mind having two of them. I just don't need two of them. <laughs> Who am I kidding? I don't, we don't need any of them, <laughs> but I, I don't, uh, don't need it taking up the space. And so I'll, I'll do that, but no, by and large, I am a long-term hoarder of cards. I wouldn't even call it a collector. I'm more of a hoarder. So but I love it.
Now you've done a video show on YouTube for a while now and within the last um, couple months got started into the podcasting realm as well. At what point in your collecting journey here did the thought and the idea of starting to create content come into play? Sporadically, I did some content, just some videos like card room videos back in 2011-ish, I think, 2012, 2013, that, that time frame. Very, very sporadic. They were horrible. Uh, my original channel, and it's still called this, is called Baseball Collector. Mm-hmm. You know, back then, you could come up with a very simple name like that. Like, I don't need to have anything fancy. I collect baseball stuff, so I'm going to call myself Baseball Collector. And I, I ran that channel exclusively. Uh, and then in about 2017, I really started seeing people doing more regular. I was just watching and consuming videos for, for three, four, five years. And I thought, you know, I, I got a lot of cool stuff. I think I would enjoy showing that off. As much as showing it off, it also archives everything too, right? It kind of provides a, a video history of my collection and it growing. And I've done kind of annually, I do card room videos just to, for me to really kind of see how it's transformed and changed over the years. And so since 2017, though, I've been putting out pretty regular content on Baseball Collector. And then in June of this year, June 2020, I uh, joined with a couple of other guys, Ty Wilson from Breaker Culture and uh, Jeff Hofer from Pack Geek. And we started a network, a, a YouTube network called BenchClear Media. And that's where I exclusively put all of my video content now and my podcast for that matter. So... Very cool. I, you know, I was, I've noticed on your podcast, your intro, and I've got to know, is that really your dad that has recorded that intro? That is really my dad. Very cool. Check that out. Check that out, Ollie. It it sounds good. And his voice fits perfectly with the the name and the theme of the podcast. You, it really just, it resonates with me as well. So I encourage all of you to check that out. And I think it, it, blends those two things and connects those things very, very well. Well, all of this is my dad's fault. My dad is a collector as well, not cards. He collects vintage tools, you know, like woodworking tools and stuff. And so I, I absolutely inherited the bug from him. And so I don't, I'm not really into woodworking and he's not really into baseball cards, but we both appreciate and respect the collector mentality that we each have. And so he's, he watches all of my YouTube videos and he's just a great, he's, he's a fan. He's my dad. So of course he's going to be supportive and so much so that when I had this idea for the podcast and said, dad, first of all, he has a great speaking voice as you heard. And I said, will you come, uh, will you come shoot my intro? And I did it as much because I've had advice from other people that, and in our world today, especially, you don't know how long people are going to be around. And I actually shot a video with my dad when Al Kaline passed away because my dad had a lot of interactions with Al Kaline in his post-playing days career in television. And uh, I just wanted to get my dad on tape. Essentially, mm-hmm. that sounds cheesy. It might. Yeah. But that's the truth of it. One of the other things that I like to t- to ask about or talk about, and and we've not hit on this at all. Um, in any of our pre-conversation, but for me, 
creating, I've found that creating content around sports cards has really enhanced my enjoyment of the hobby. It seems like there's a variety of reasons that people find an enjoyment being enhanced through content creation. I was just curious if you found the same thing and what in particular, you know, have you found has, that has added the most to your collecting experience? 1000% true that that is a true statement, that it has enhanced my love of the hobby. If you think about all this stuff that we collect, if it sits in a dark hole, we don't share it. What's the point? Quite frankly, at least that's the way I look at it. And for me, the content creation was an avenue that led to some things that I never thought would happen. And that is developing relationships with people and friendships that go way beyond cards now. And so much so that I literally talk to someone in the hobby every day, either through text, phone call, video chat, you name it. It is, you just find all these people that are like-minded and have similar passions, maybe about different things that they personally collect, but you share this quirky disease that we all have and it is wonderful and that would i tell you be the most important thing about content creation that's enhanced the hobby for me is finding so many people that i can share the love with then that in turn leads to the whole other part of inspiration right because then i'm now consuming a lot of content of my friends and other people that i know uh, and i go wow that's a really cool card that so and so picked up I would, and then I'm next thing you know, I'm searching eBay for that card going, man, I never knew I wanted that. But after hearing them talk so passionately about it or tell a story or whatever and have a connection, I'm like, okay, that's really super cool. I want to go get one of those. So that's absolutely enhanced my love of the hobby. Yeah. For me, the, the relationship aspect has been number one as well. You know, I, I sometimes say, you know, when, when we were young, every kid on the street pretty much seemed like they were collecting cards. There was no shortage of people around who, who collected cards. That's not necessarily the case anymore. And it seems like sometimes that some of us collectors are this odd band of misfits or something and finding through content creation and through some of the online resources that we've got, other people who are like-minded and enjoy some of these same things has been so cool and getting to build and meet relationships with other people from all across the country and all across the world for that matter, who also enjoy this hobby has been really cool. You know, I've had a chance to have multiple conversations with Dr. Beckett over the last year or so. And that was one of the icons growing up, you know, and, and now having a chance to be able to interact with him regularly and pick his brain on things is is something that is just so awesome that if I wasn't involved in content creation would not have at all been possible. So for me, I would say the same thing. Relationships have been, have been so awesome. Can I tell you a great story? Yeah, that'd be great. I told you when one of the sets that really got me going on the vintage thing and really autographs and everything was 83 Donner's Hall of Fame heroes. And then I loved Diamond Kings growing up, right? I mean, you always wanted to know who was going to be the Diamond Kings on your on your team and, you know, who would be in that set and or that subset, I guess, of the Don, early Donruss years. Well, then 
like last year, I got to interview Dick Perez. Oh, and wow. Actually, and he made, you know, Perez steal postcards. And I mean, Dick Perez has had such a huge influence on our hobby that most people don't even, if they think about it, they'll go, oh my gosh, he's done a lot of stuff and contributed a lot to the hobby. And I got to interview him for my YouTube channel. That was kind of one of those, whoa, I'm talking to Dick Perez. And uh, it was just super cool. And he was super nice. It was great. So exactly what you're talking about with Dr. Beckett. I would love to talk to Dr. Beckett. He's, I, I grew up on his magazine, right? Like we all did. And uh, so just those kinds of things that, like you said, had we not ever started creating content, those opportunities would not exist. Well, thank you so much for spending some time today kind of talking about your background and your content creation and all of that type of thing. Where can people follow you and get a hold of you? Well, the podcast, it's just started. We've done four episodes, but we've got a, a bunch on the pipeline, including Mr. Summer will be on a future episode. And it's called uh, The Golden Age of Cardboard is the name of that podcast. And it's on all the different podcast networks. If you want to go look for that, that'd be great. And then on YouTube, you can find my content along with bunches of other great content creators uh, at Bench Clear Media on YouTube. So I've got, and if you want to go back and watch old videos and kind of see all the stuff I've picked up over the years, Baseball Collector is the name of that channel. So very cool. Any, so, any social media handles or anything like that? Uh, I am a baseball collector Mike on Instagram and Moiny Rangers fan on Twitter. Although I, you gotta, you gotta think there's just so many different places to try to keep up with stuff. You can only do so much, right? <laughs> so, yeah. uh, I'm more of a YouTube kind of guy and I have an Instagram and I have Twitter, but I'm not, you know, I look at Instagram every four or five days, maybe. I look at Twitter once every two weeks. So Okay. Follow you on YouTube is the best way to, to, to follow and get in touch. And interact and you bet. Would love to hear from you. Sounds good. Well, thanks again, Mike. You're so welcome, Mike. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Mike for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I highly encourage you to go check out his YouTube show as well as his podcast, uh, if you want to learn about vintage, it's a great resource, so go follow along with Mike. I would also love it if you left a rating and review on your podcast app of choice. I'd really appreciate it. I'd like to make a push to get some more ratings and reviews to bump me up in the, in the iTunes algorithm or the Apple podcast al algorithm to help more people find the show. I really appreciate it. I also like to learn uh, from you about what you like and what you don't like about the show, so I would love to get that feedback from you. That's all I've got for you today. Thanks, and I'll catch you next time.